Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is Grant Lawrence. Grant's book, Return to Solitude, More Desolation Sound Adventures with the Cougar Lady, Russell the Hermit, the Spaghetti Bandit, and others, was a finalist for the 2023 Bill Duthie Booksellers Choice Award. On this episode, Grant talks about the way these characters who sought out solitude and the more journalistic approach he took in Return to Solitude. Grant starts our episode with a reading from Return to Solitude. Uh, This story is from Return to Solitude, and it's one of the few throwback stories in the book to when I was young. Most of the book takes place uh, with me as an adult and uh, my kids being young. But this is one of the few that throws back to when I was little, uh, kind of almost like a story that could have been in my first book, but ended up in this one. And it kind of... uh, it showcases my resistance to the wilderness that I had when I was a kid uh, versus my dad. The unbroken rainforest that spilled out endlessly behind our cabin became dad's adventure playground, and I was expected to accompany him wherever he went. I was a very insecure 11-year-old. I was scared of the woods, and I would often try to squirm out of the hikes, but Dad would never let me off the hook. He'd drag me along deeper and deeper into the forest, far from the security of the cabin and the wide-open beachfront. I had terribly wonky knees when I was a kid, which would painfully dislocate if I wasn't careful about exactly where I was placing each step of my runners. I was always pushing my thick glasses up my nose and listening to my knee braces squeak. And I was often concentrating so hard on where I put my feet that I often missed the emerald surroundings that my father would marvel at. Dad was always coming up with different kind of make work reasons to get me into the woods. One spring morning at the cabin when I was uh, really just relaxing on the couch, he announced that several of our cabin neighbors were wondering where their private property ended and where the common property of our strata began. Therefore, we needed to survey some of the lots to mark their back property lines, which could often be an acre or two into the thick forest of Desolation Sound, British Columbia. All right, come on, Grant, let's go stake them out, my dad declared eagerly. I looked up from the couch and Tintin's Prisoners of the Sun, the best one in the series, in my opinion. What does that mean, Dad? Stake them out. It means you need to get your runners on. And while he gathered up his hatchet and several wooden property stakes and then shoved them into my appropriated North Shore News delivery bag, I slowly got up from the couch. And soon we were forcing our way through the sharp limbs of manzanita bushes, a kind of knurled little sister to the arbutus tree, 
following Dad's survey map and compass through the underbrush. Dad's orienteering soon led us to the bottom of a near vertical 10 meter cliff that he just started climbing. Um, Dad, what are you doing? I questioned nervously. Well, if I figured this out correctly, the property line for this lot should be right at the top of this cliff as he made his way straight up. Dad, shouldn't we find some way to go around? I urged, like, couldn't we go back to the trail? I didn't want to appear like the frightened kid I was in front of my alpha father. So I did what he was doing. Just stay right behind me. Put your hands where I had my feet. Soon we were both halfway up the cliff. Hey, these are making it easy, Dad said, grabbing onto an exposed arbutus root. These are just like handles. Crack. The root that Dad had gripped was rotten and broke off in his hand. He slipped from his perch and fell backwards. And as he instructed, I was right behind him. His 165 pounds of muscle slammed into me like a sack of rocks, knocking me loose. Soon we were falling helplessly through midair. It reminded me of that scene from Vertigo where James Stewart falls out of his apartment window. I landed flat on my back. All of my dad came down directly on top of me. After a moment, he scrambled around to face me. Grant, are you okay? I couldn't understand why, but I didn't feel a thing. I expected to be mangled with broken bones or worse, but it felt like I had landed on grandma's feather bed. Maybe I was in shock. Maybe the pain would soon charge forward like an enraged bear, but it never did. Dad got to his feet. Can you stand up? Slowly, I sat up. I was confused. I straightened my glasses and I looked around. And by some miracle, we had fallen onto a mattress of rainforest green moss, easily a couple of feet thick. When I got to my feet, there was a perfect indentation of our bodies in the bed of moss. Ooh, well, that was lucky, huh? Said Dad nervously, giving me a kind of one-armed half-hug. He looked me over, and he pulled some moss out of my hair. Are you sure you're okay? Probably best not to uh, mention this to Mom. Why don't we go back to the trail? There you go. Thanks, Grant. Um, all right, so my first question for you is, who are you? My name is Grant Lawrence, and I'm an author and a broadcaster, and I split my time between living in the traditional territory of the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam First Nations in Vancouver, and in the Talaman First Nation territory in Desolation Sound. I have to say, this was maybe uh, the most fun book prizes book for me to read because so much of this is familiar to me living on the territory of the Klamath Nation. Mm -hmm. um, 
But for those who are new to your solitude books, and I can't believe there are those who might be new to them, could you introduce us a bit to your family's cabin and to the area where these stories are set? Yeah, uh, well, as I mentioned, they are on the traditional territory of the Tulaman First Nation, as well as the Klahus and the Homolko. And it's a spectacular, special area of the world called Desolation Sound, so named by uh, Captain Vancouver. There is no overall First Nations name for the entire area. Uh, there are plenty of localized names and village names, but no overarching names. So Desolation Sound is the name that we still use to describe the area. And it is located at the very northern end of what we call the Sunshine Coast. And in this case, the northern Sunshine Coast. So if you go to the traditional uh, village site of Klaaman, which... Uh, for years has been known as Lund, which is the last end of the road, the foot of Highway 101. And you get into a boat and you drive for about you know, 30 to 40 minutes or so. You will find yourself in an area with no roads, just mountains and islands and lakes and evergreen trees and arbutus and cliffs and nooks and crannies. And that is Desolation Sound. And for those that have never been, the way I describe it is uh, most people know where Tofino is. Most people have been to Tofino on Vancouver Island. But across the water from Tofino is Clackwat Sound. And that's similar. And very few people have been to Clackwat Sound just because of that, that, water, that watery saltwater moat. And it's similar situation in Desolation Sound. Uh, if you drive, if you catch the two ferries and you drive up and you don't have a boat, there's a pretty high chance that unless you're renting a kayak, you're not going to get into Desolation Sound. You really need a boat to get there. And it's a place that my family has been going to for uh, about, well, almost 50 years. I guess we first started going in 1976 when I was just a little kid, five years old. And uh, we've been going ever since. And I went through that, which I write about in Adventures in Solitude, my first book. I go through that rite of passage that a lot of people go through. And a lot of people do it in Powell River. And I see it happening all the time. Lund as well. Um, they are dragged somewhere by their parents or forced to live somewhere by their parents, so they think. And then they go, I can't wait to get out of this shithole. I'm out of here as soon as I possibly can. And then uh, like your partner, they, they come home, you know, and, and they realize, which is what I realized in Desolation Sound is, oh my goodness, this, my parents had me in the best place on earth. Like uh, this is spectacular. But when we are, uh, a teenager when we're in our early 20s whatever it's a biological thing to reject the parental ideals because that's how we learn um, and find out who we are that's how we test uh, what we can endure that's how how we can see how we can survive on our own so i broke out of desolation sound and out of my home in vancouver 
when I was a young kid and formed a rock and roll band and got to tour the world for many, many, many years. And then when that wound down, I went back to Desolation Sound almost reluctantly even then. And But then I realized that I had that moment of, oh, <laughs> this is... This is spectacular. How could I not have seen it with these eyes? But you need to go and do that walkabout and see different parts of the world to realize what you hold dear and what you value. And then I realized that, you know, from the reading there, I was the scared little 11 year old. I, uh, I realized that a lot of the things and a lot of the people that I was scared of when I was a kid uh, were beautiful or were fascinating. And so uh, when I became a journalist as an adult, I realized, oh my goodness, I, I have a story here that that has all these elements to it. And uh, I just, I, basically what inspired me to write it from the get-go was not my story. It was actually the story of the people up there. And I realized that every single one of them had this sort of, different very unique and different but they all had reasons of how they ended up there and why and they're usually outsiders outliers uh they usually um they usually didn't want to have anything to do with the regular society or the rat race and that really fascinated me like who are these people and that are living way off the grid and often without electricity or plumbing or any creature comforts, a lot of them, but they loved it. And so that's really what I wanted to examine. And then I kind of played that my fish out of water kid story against uh, that. And, and eventually it all comes together and now it's two books worth. Yeah. I mean, it's something I find so interesting about the characters you introduce and, and the folks that I know in this area and the stories I know is people don't, the folks who settled here and, and built their homes here, they didn't end up here by accident. This isn't one of those places where it's like you get off the train station and you find a job and here you are. But it's it's really a choice to come up here. People, there's some people, you know, the back to the landers that came after, uh, escaping the Vietnam War. They came for their own, their own reasons. I mean, Mark Vonnegut, Kurt Vonnegut's son was here mm -hmm. in a commune. Um, but, you know, there's an element of people who kind of want to be off grid. But as you introduce in your in your books, a community grows out of this, too. Like people really can't just exist out in the bush all by themselves. Eventually, you have to reach out to someone. Um, yeah. And, and I think the environment contributes to that in a certain way. So I wondered if you could talk about those two things coming together and, and how you saw those, you know, the community growing out of these unique situations and these you know we do see these characters that are surly and a little yeah. bit scary guns pointed in your face and packs of dogs but once you get to know them they're just you know just like everyone else and and you're right i mean you, you hit the nail on the head there and that they they do despite uh despite shunning society a lot of them and and not wanting to be in a city and not wanting to be part of a rat race uh and and thinking that they do want to be alone one thing that i discovered again and again and again and again is that human beings 
we are social creatures and there's a reason that we gather. I mean, whether it's a dinner party or New York City, there's a reason that people gather. Like originally it was for safety, you know, way back, you know, like cave era times, there's safety in numbers and it, it exists to this day. And humans just feel we're, we're pack animals, we're herders, uh, we're, we're tribes people. And we we feel most comfortable, most of us around other people. And uh, that these outliers that I write about didn't want to do that. But eventually they did feel the need to socialize for their mental health. Uh, because there's a there's a phenomenon that exists that has a colloquial term called going bush, which is essentially brought on by isolation. And and if you like look at the prison system, you know uh, isolation is used as a punishment. You know uh, whatever they call it um, when they throw someone into one of those tiny little rooms, it's because they've done something really bad. And they go nuts, you know. They they lose their their faculties, and and when they are finally released, they have to kind of regain it. And we saw that on a wilderness level in Desolation Sound, and we've seen it several times. Where if you don't socialize, it's a like I remember we there was a hermit that lived beside us, Russell uh, Latoski, who became as you described there no gun in the face that was um nancy crowther <laughs> but he would spend long stretches of time alone and then we would show up our family because our cabin was beside his little shack and he would be friendly and he would greet us but then we'd sit down at the table and he would talk for like two three hours straight and hardly any of us could get a word in edgewise because he had been saving it all up for a month or six weeks or whatever and filing all those thoughts and all those ideas and all those stories and i would say to my parents like what what is going on what is what's wrong with russell and my dad would explain he, he hasn't seen anybody for you know a month and he's got a lot to say there's a lot that that's going to come pouring out, but he's okay. And he's, he's, you know, it's just the way he is. So that was, a. it's, it's fascinates me to this day, uh, that fine line between social isolation. And, and, uh, I think one of the, there's something, there's a quote at the beginning of my book. I can't remember where it is, but it's something like there is a joy in solitude and a sad sadness and loneliness or something like that. And there's a fine line between those those two worlds. And you know, when you you talk about the waves of uh, of settlers, yeah, I mean, obviously, ten thousand plus years, the First Nations, and then there was the wave of the Europeans, and a lot of them. Uh, as you said earlier, knew where they were going um, because they had land deals. You know, they would get this this thing called a preemption. And Canada was trying to populate the West and they would basically place ads in European newspapers, practically saying free land in Canada. And unfortunately, these primo locations, the 
uh, Talaman in in this case were were bumped, were were forcibly at times or coercively removed from their village sites. And those sites, because we're all human, the Talaman lived in the nicest and choicest spots too, where there was fresh water and there was low land and nice beach access. And all of a sudden, those places with all their incredible clam gardens were suddenly preempted for Europeans. And uh, there's no way that the Europeans would have known that there wasn't human habitation there beforehand. Uh, simply, the clam gardens are are the biggest indication. At low tide, it's it's like a tiered, almost like a rice paddy system of plateaus all the way down, and they're everywhere. And that's 100% evidence of long time, not only human habitation, but but farming. And so that exists throughout Desolation Sound as well, which is, is very fascinating. Uh, because if you move a big rock, uh, chances are it's going to stay there for a long, 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 long time. And the Talaman moved a ton of rocks to form these fish traps and walls. And it was my dad who pointed those out to me for the first time uh, long before they were even accepted as a reality. You know, the loggers came in and they needed to get into those little coves and stuff like that because it was the easiest place to put a skid road to get the logs out. And they destroyed a lot of the clam gardens, but a lot of them still exist because they're like, what is this rock wall here? We need to get these logs out of here. Uh, who knows? Just pile drive through it. So anyway, it's a fascinating history and it's a complicated history. It's a dirty history. And it, it has multiple layers because after the after the pioneers or the colonizers, the settlers, there was, as you say, the back to the land uh, wave, which was the hippies and the draft dodgers, a lot which still populate the alder and cedar forests around Lund. And then after that, there's always been this like societal clash where just off the shores of Lund and Lund has always been pretty, you know, hippie, blue collar, kind of that mix, which had its own culture clashes. But then you've got the two island jewels off of Lund, Savory and Hernando, which is like big, big old school Vancouver money, like judges and doctors and lawyers. And then so you got all of them coming into Lund in the summertime. So there was, I mean, my dad and I, when, when I was a kid, there would be this crazy culture clash in Lund every year. There was the First Nations, there was the fishermen, there was the loggers, there was the hippies. And then there was the, the essentially the ultra rich and privileged heading to these spectacular white sand islands that were just off the coast. And that culture clash, which also fascinates me, exists to this day. And you, all you have to do is join one of the Facebook groups to see it in real time. And, uh, and I sort of straddle those lines. Sometimes I'm accused of being a, an elitist, um, you know, whatever blankety blank, blank, blank. And sometimes I'm considered local and it's, it's just a, a hodgepodge, but I try to just kind of uh, stay as neutral as possible, observe and write. 
I wanted to ask a little bit about traditions of like oral storytelling in your books, because I've always found with your writing, there's an element of like, I call you like today's Stuart McLean. There's a something about it where it just feels like your stories beg to be told out loud. Oh, yeah, um, there's an element of, you know, like gathering around a fire with, you know, family and hearing these stories. And I imagine that's an element of how these stories were shared with you through people yeah. and gathered around a table. How did that shape the way you wrote these books, that these were oral stories? Well, uh, it's a great question. Um, you know, obviously the nude potluck, that story, one side of it existed around our family dinner table uh, for uh, still to this day. You know, like it's one of those favorite stories, like tell that one again, like what happened when the penises were bouncing past Heather's <laughs> eye level, my little sister. And that was the first um, potluck we were invited to in, in Desolation Sound and it was hosted by a hippie and it was a lot of nude people and we were kind of small C conservative North Shore family and it was a big shock anyway um, so yeah like those stories grow over time it's kind of like the fishing story like the the fish gets bigger and bigger but um, and and I, I will say that with my first book Adventures in Solitude it was often like it was, you know, it's creative nonfiction, but it was often best story wins, like best version wins. With the second book, Return to Solitude, I'm 10 years older. It was a much more journalistic effort where I really tried much harder to get all sides of the story and to, you know, I, I mean, essentially the first book is our side of the story. You know, it's it's my family's version of events and the second book is much more of both much much way more balanced it's it's through the eyes and the stories and the voice of russell the hermit and nancy crowther the, the cougar lady and bernard the german it is their their tellings and some of it was uh all of it was tons and tons and tons of interviews and and diaries and old notebooks and letters and correspondence and all that kind of stuff just piecing together this big jigsaw puzzle because you know i recognize that the first one while received well and funny and all that i wanted to just get more of the local voice and and the other side of the story essentially um, through so that that was the big change between the two books um you know i don't know if the if the new one is as funny or as ribald uh because you know there's there's some there's death in it and there's uh, uh horrible accidents and there's you know a lot of the people that i write about who i'm friends with or were friends with are now dead I mean, I'm looking at the back cover and there's pictured our Bernard the German, the cougar lady, Nancy Crowther and Russell. And when I started writing the book, I think Bernard and Russell were alive and now all three of them are, are gone. And so I'm just thankful that I was able to spend time with them all and be friends with them all and record their stories and and get them down on paper, whether whether they liked it or not and but i what what i've found is that 
a lot of my subjects that I write about uh, feign humility and then, but ego is such a beast. And a lot of people do appreciate having their, their story told. Especially because these are such tremendous stories of, you know, I mean, Russell climbing over the coast mountains is yeah. such an incredible story. And, and I think it's just a small sampling of so many of the amazing stories that exist in, in communities like this at, all over Canada, these frontier communities where people go to great lengths to make a living um, in extraordinary situations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and that, that was a, that, famous hike that Russell took over the coast mountains with his girlfriend, Audrey, the, the big thing I touched on that hike in my first book, because it was a big part of Russell's identity. Um, but for the second book, I was able to track down Audrey, the, who is a wonderful woman and lives up in um, the salmon arm area and the shoe swap. And I was able to get her side of it. And that was actually one of the most, uh, rewarding i don't know if that's the right word gratifying because you know i would sit for hours with russell and i would interview him and get all these stories and he had such a crazy life and and you know lived 10 years as a hermit and and i would just record and record and record and record but there was not a lot of i couldn't find a lot of people to back it up and then finally i found audrey and I had Russell's version of the hike on one side and I interviewed Audrey extensively and I was so happy to see that they aligned and that there was no major contradictions or almost none. And that after like, there was like a 50 year gap from the hike to when I interviewed them both. And it was very gratifying for me to see that after 50 years, their stories just lined up, you know, you could, yeah. you could line them up like that. And that was as an author, um, that was really great because it, it, it meant, you know, like a journalist would have to figure out, okay, well, what is true? But for me, if they have the exact same or very close to the same version of events, then I sleep better at night because I know <laughs> that I've got the right version. Yeah. Um, can I briefly ask you what you're working on these days? Yeah, um, i am got a kid's book on the go, which is a kid's version of Adventures in Solitude. It's kind of, it'll be like a picture book version of the experience my sister and I had. So that's on tap. As well, I'm work, I do a lot of, um, what's become like this series of podcast spin-offs of the characters from the book that get aired on CBC radio on North by Northwest. And I'm working on one about a, a really, I only, he got like a couple paragraphs in my first book, but this guy's name was Jeffrey Schuster, oyster Baron of Oak over inlet. And <clears throat> he was this guy from Montreal and he had this big afro and he was a long distance runner and he played the saxophone and he 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 was just this 
character like that i he died uh in a gruesome death like many desolation sound deaths are so i i only met him once or twice at the wharf but i've always been really interested in his story and i've been reaching out to his various family members and his story runs deep and uh and is quite interesting so that might be a new podcast um slash series that i'm working on about uh that was grant lawrence grant's book return to solitude more desolation sound adventures with the cougar lady russell the hermit the spaghetti bandit and others was a finalist for the 2023 bill duthy booksellers choice award if you would like to find out more about the bc and yukon book prizes visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com you can also, of course, find us on social media, on Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.